You know, the, the very idea that these movements are somehow, you know, stupid or ignorant is really wrong. Um, and it's a great mistake that leftish or centrist intellectuals make when thinking about them. They're often extremely sophisticated and they have sophisticated people working for them. I'm Perry Rogers and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Ann Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. She's also a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Agora Institute, where she co-directs ARENA, a program on disinformation and 21st century propaganda. A Washington Post columnist for 15 years and a former member of the editorial board, she has also worked as the foreign and deputy editor of The Spectator magazine in London, as a political editor of The Evening Standard, and as a columnist at Slate, as well as The Daily and Sunday Telegraphs. From 1988 to 1991, she covered the collapse of communism as the Warsaw correspondent of The Economist magazine and the independent newspaper. She is also the author of Gulag, a history, which narrates the history of the Soviet concentration camp system and describes daily life in the camps, making extensive use of recently opened Russian archives, as well as memoirs and interviews. Gulag won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction in 2004 and was also a National Book Award finalist. Anne's newest book, The Twilight of Democracy, explains with electrifying clarity why some of her contemporaries have abandoned liberal democratic ideals in favor of strongman cults, nationalist movements, or one-party states. And here's our conversation with Anne Applebaum. Uh, So Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much um, for your time. So your book, Twilight of Democracy, I read the first chapter and sent Ed a text right away that just said, wow, Um, there's a story that you have in this first chapter, which I think is so universal. I connected to it so much. And I'm hoping that we can start with you kind of summarizing that story and the impact it had on your life and your thinking. So the, the first chapter of my book begins with a description of my millennial New Year's Eve party. And the reason for that is not because it was that amazing a party or because I'm an amazing hostess or even because I go to a lot of parties. The reason is that parties are a useful metaphor. You know, they are the the people who you invite to your New Year's Eve party are not all your best friends, but they represent a kind of milieu. They're sort of people who you know or they're acquaintances. Um, And in this case, uh, when I thought about the party 20 years later, which I which I did starting in about 2018, 2019, um, I, th- I thought about who was there and I realized that about that I wasn't speaking anymore to about half the people at a party, but that it wasn't personal, that about half the party was no longer speaking to the other half of the party, um, and that there had been a political divide and a real intellectual transformation that had taken place in the interim decades. And that thought was the thought that set me out on the book. Because, And it, it, to be clear, it's a it's not a book about Trumpism. It's not a book about populism exactly. It's about the appeal of radicalism to intellectuals, journalists, philosophers, politicians, people, people of the kind that I 
no. Um, and what is the appeal of those ideas, what of, of radical ideas, why they're attracted to them and why that rubs so hard against what their old friends believed or still believe. Part of this was even the godmother of one of your children you found yourself at odds with. And so I know that it wasn't personal and yet there is a personal aspect to this. And I think that that's kind of the universal thing that we can all relate to recently is friends, uh, you know, uh, colleagues, uh, people from your distant past suddenly are, you find yourself in a predicament that is shocking and, and something you couldn't have predicted. Um, talk about that part of it, the kind of the, the, the personal nature of people who you were close to with whom you'd shared ideas and philosophies and beliefs and suddenly you find yourself in a, a completely different world. So as you say, this is now a very common problem. Um, I've had this conversation with many people. I, you know, I've had it with friends in Poland who say, you know, I can't talk to my parents anymore because they live in this alternate reality where, um, where the, 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 the Poland's far right ruling party is, is an absolute truth teller to them. And they don't, they don't believe me when I say they're lying or when I contradict them. Um, I've had this conversation with people in America who have the same problem with their Fox television watching parents. Um, and of course, I think, you know, at this point in American history, if you're, you know, if you're over the age of 30, you probably have at least one friend who's gone in, in, an, in a direction you didn't expect or, a, or, a, or an acquaintance or, I don't know, the mother of one of your children's friends or something. I mean, so I, I think everybody is now familiar with this. Um, and, and of course, what it illustrates is something that has become um, one of the big challenges to democracy, not just in America, but everywhere, um, which is that the nature of modern media and modern social media and modern politics and the internet makes it now possible for people to live in genuinely alternative universes, where we're not just talking about opinions being different, where you know, we, we, we all think that a road should be built, but one group thinks it should be built east to west and the other thinks it should be built north to south, and we're just debating over that. We are now in a world where some people think the road exists and some think it doesn't exist. In other words, the, the nature of reality itself is now at stake um, and, the, and, and, the, and the truth of what we understand about America in particular. Um, and that has made it very difficult for people to go on having relationships with people who they who they who they so fundamentally disagree with. Um, and you know, we can. There are a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, one one of the reasons is that politics have always been polarizing, and and people have always fallen out over over political issues. And so, in some senses, there's nothing new. And then there's some elements of it that are new um, to do with, as I said, the nature of the news and how we read it and how we perceive it, um, which I think is quite different from what it was a generation ago. Yeah, this is a common issue that both Perry and I, Perry and I both have experienced in our own life. And I, and I know many families where, where it's going on. One of the things you talk about in the book that I thought was really fascinating, I, and I, I want to just take directly from it because I'm holding it here, is that you know here in the United States, because there seems to be something specific happening on the political right that we don't recognize as as what we would think of as as conservatism or or traditional republican values it has got people thinking that it's a problem over there but you know you talk about in the book how this mindset of authoritarianism is really something that happens 
on the left as well as the right. And, and you cite the behavioral economist, uh, Karen Stenner, who wrote about uh, personality traits. And, and she has argued that a third of the population in, in any country has what she calls an authoritarian predisposition. And, and, and I just want to read this brief segment here from the book where you say authoritarianism appeals simply to people who cannot tolerate complexity. There is nothing intrinsically left or right wing about the instinct at all. It is anti-pluralist. It is suspicious of people with different ideas. It is allergic to fierce debates, whether those who have it ultimately derive their politics from Marxism or nationalism, it's irrelevant. It is a frame of mind, not a set of ideas. And, and that really connected with me because I you know, began to think about how, and you talk about it in the book also, how you know, on the left, you have these um, passions about class, and on the right, you have these passions about nationalism and taken to the extreme, they lead to authoritarian uh, intuitions. Talk a little bit about how perhaps the guests at your party, and I've thought more about people I know in my life, you know, if they really are susceptible to this way of thinking, it's not about ideas per se, but it's sort of like a comfort um, with, with kind of a, um, uh, I don't, I'm not sure how I would describe it, um, but it is, a, it is a way in which there's uncomfortable with the nuances of very complicated, complicated and difficult issues. It's about being, you're right, um, what Karen Stenner is talking about. And by the way, one of the reasons I like what she writes is that she talks about an authoritarian predisposition and not a personality. In other words, it, you know, it can be triggered by something or by a right. circumstance. It's not always necessarily there. Um, um, so it's and it's not innate or it's not genetic or something like that. I mean, she she just talks about some personalities being more more susceptible. I mean, my my general view is that it's very often triggered by um, um, something like disappointment or um, feeling of you know you know that something about society is uncongenial that things are moving too quickly that that change is happening too fast you know that political debate is too bitter. Um, and it makes people, you know, it makes people nostalgic for some earlier, simpler, um, clearer moment in history when we were all unified and when there wasn't this kind of bitterness um, and when we all had one leader. Um, and it's it's a it's a it's it's and and all of us, by the way, are susceptible to some of that. I mean, the frustration with living in the political world at the moment, you know, for everybody is so high, you know that. Um, you know, everybody has their dark moments of thinking, you know, couldn't we just fix it all or end it all or <laughs> just get yeah. everyone to agree, you know, yeah. um, but the, but for, but for, but for a lot of people, it's, um, it becomes overwhelming and this feeling that there is um, too much pressure for change or too much heterogeneity or too much division or too much anger does lead them into a, you know, wanting some very different kind of political system. Um, and this is clearly a thing that happens periodically in all democracies. Um, democracies, um, you know, if you look back over history, I mean, you know, it's funny when the founding fathers of the United States were writing the U.S. Constitution, um, what they were thinking about was the Roman Republic, which was a, um, you know, which was a, which was a, which was a, a, a kind of democracy that had also declined. 
Um, and so they were they were thinking, how do we protect our democracy against the emotions of the people who are going to get tired of it or frustrated with it or so on? Um, and then one of the reasons they designed our somewhat wacky constitution was because they imagined that it would fend off um, you know, the, 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 you know, the people who were susceptible to demagoguery, that it would somehow protect the virtue of the system. But, but, you know, they knew that people were always, you know, that that tendency in human nature was there, you know, they understood that it could always reemerge. Um, and it's really only in the modern era in the last, you know, several decades that we somehow forgot that. Um, and, you know, have been rudely reminded of it by the events of the last four years, and particularly of the past couple months. You know, you, you have um, just some beautiful writing about the founding of our country and the optimism that our founding fathers had. And, you know, uh, I certainly appreciated your comments about Reagan and his farewell address and um, uh, kind of his approach on American exceptionalism. But I, I do wonder, and Ed and I have talked about this a lot, I just wonder whether or not um, Reagan's first inaugural address was a, a sea change for us that, you know, in 60, uh, Kennedy says, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And in 80, just 20 years later, Reagan is there saying, government's not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. And in a democracy, it's the first time that we kind of have the leader of the Republic really turning us in on ourselves. And, I'm wondering if you think that, that that thinking has just seemed to metastasize, that the government is the problem, that they're the other. Yeah, I would, I would question whether that was the first moment in American history when that had happened. I mean, I think actually, if you go back to the very beginning, there is this long tradition of American suspicion of power, you know, starting with people being suspicious of Alexander Hamilton wanting there to be a, you know, a, a, a national bank. Um, and, and suspiciousness of power, feeling that, you know, virtue lay in the citizens and in their actions. I mean, even de Tocqueville's observations of America in the first half of the 19th century, that Americans were self-reliant, that they built these institutions, that they were self-governing. I mean, there's like, that's a long, that goes very deep back into American history. And I think Reagan was, was probably trying to appeal to that. But of course, you can read his comments in, in two ways. I mean, you know, you could read it either again, as I say, someone evoking that tradition someone seeking to curb what had been maybe the excesses of government. Maybe there was, there was too much government. And I, by the way, I, I, I spent the first decade of my career writing about the collapse of communism. So I am aware that there can be, you know, and, 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 and Americans should also be where there can be such a thing as too much government. Um, um, and so whether, and you can argue about whether that's what he was doing, whether it was a reasonable reaction or whether, as your question implies, that he was citing, kind of inciting Americans against their state and against their government. Um, and, you know, in a, in, in a way that argument could have gone either way. I mean, if you look at subsequent Republicans, um, you know, even if, if you think of George H.W. Bush or even George W. Bush, I mean, they weren't actually especially anti-government or, or, or certainly not anti-institutional. So, so while you can certainly find the origins of Trumpism or of this anti-constitutional, anti-systemic movement that we now have in our country, you can find them in Reaganism. Um, they didn't. You don't have to find them there. In other words, we did. We you know we could have gone and we could have gone in other directions, and the Republican Party could have gone in other directions. Um, but yes, I mean cer certainly, if you want to trace the origins of 
opposition to the system, suspicion of institutions. You know, you can you can go back to Reagan and then you can keep going back to Coolidge and then you can keep going back to the Confederacy. I mean, you know, and then you can go to Thomas Jefferson. So they, I think they've been part of our kind of the complexion of our politics for a long time. Yeah, I think we all wonder a little bit why this is happening. And you talk about in the book, you know, that if you go back to the Cold War and when we were, fa- the country was confronting the threat of the Soviet Union and communism, uh, there was this cohesion around that project to fight communism. Uh, and so the, 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 while there were certainly many political differences, there was, a, the, as you describe it, a tighter range of foreign policy options at that time. And once the Soviet bloc fell, you, there were different groups of conservatives that kind of splintered. Talk about that because I hope it. I, I think it helps explain how this was not a monolithic, you know, group, and really without that common cause, there there really is a divide in different directions in which they went. So the nature of our political system, for better and for worse, forces us into two big political parties, and both of those parties are coalitions. Um, and the anti-communist coalition, which was actually a bit bigger than the Republican, it included a lot of Democrats too. Sure. Um, was was absolutely a coalition of people who were there for different reasons. So some people were cold warriors or anti-communists because they were afraid of Soviet nuclear weapons and they were concerned about realpolitik and American influence in Europe and Asia, okay? Some people were anti-communists because they cared about democracy and human rights and they, you know, they were fighting against, you know, the the uh, you know, a totalitarian political system. Some people were anti-communists because they were deeply religious and they believed that the communists were atheists and that it was therefore their religious obligation to get rid of communism. Um, and I can certainly, you know, in my life, I've met all three um, and then there, there, there are other variations too. One of the things that happened after communism fell and after, um, you know, after the, after the Cold War was no longer the central issue in American foreign policy and to some extent even in American domestic policy, um, those some people in those groups suddenly found that they no longer had that much in common. And that whereas they had all agreed about the threat of communism to the world or to America or to Europe, um, they didn't agree about anything else. Um, I think that the group was kept together artificially by 9-11, you know, that somehow created this new cause around which people could rally. Um, and then after that, um, it splintered. Um, and it's it's now I think now splintered for good and the, and and if you think about what those even I mean I, again as I said there are more but if you think about even those three groups that I've just named their motivations for being in politics the issues that they think are important um, are all really quite different and so the conservative movement as it existed in in the 1980s when Reagan was president really doesn't have a really doesn't exist at all anymore there's no the issues that bound it the things that people thought they had in common are gone. Um, and so, you know, we have to redefine what conservatism means. And, and, and that has also led to deep changes inside the Republican Party. And you also see, you know, some Republicans wondering if they're still Republicans or do I still belong in this group with these people who I suddenly realize I have nothing to do with. Um, and then you've had people. I mean, what, what we've essentially lived through over the last couple of decades is one of these periodic moments when the intellectual landscape shifts and the nature, you know, what we're talking about, what we think is important, all those issues have changed. And with it, the kind of coalitions of friends and allies that make up political parties and actually that make up New Year's Eve parties um, have shifted along with it. 
And so these coalitions have shifted and we don't have, let's say the conservative movement doesn't have a common uh, enemy anymore. Um, well, well, no, it does. It's just not, it's just not a foreign enemy. Yeah. And that's kind of where I was going was um, what, what happens then as a result is uh, you, you, we've seen this rise of nationalism become the common theme. Um, this idea that, you know, diversity, which we've already discussed, it relate, it equates to complexity. And for people who are not comfortable with these complex ideas and nuance, um, they're averse to it. And so they find that they want a simpler time. They want a simpler uh, answer and they want to find a common enemy. And so, again, we're, we seem to be eating ourselves, which is that the more diverse we become and we're becoming uh, diverse at a quicker rate than we ever have. Hmm. So the more diverse that we become, the more we're seeing to poke the bear of authoritarian sentiments. Is that yes. kind of how you see it? Yeah, I mean, there and, and the more we... Um, you know, divide society by race, the more we, we get this kind of reactionary white ethnic nationalism. Um, then nationalism is actually the wrong word. I would say nativism, um, uh, you know, kind of white ethnic identity nativism that seeks to defend what it sees as its prerogatives in, um, in modern America. So yes, there is a, um, that, that is part of what happens. I mean, to be, to be, to be clear, though, there's something about your question I wanted to under, underline, um, not, not everybody who joins or forms or becomes a spokesman for these kinds of reactionary movements is somebody who is afraid of nuance and dislikes, you know, diversity. Some of them are also very cynical um, and very intelligent people who, who understand exactly what they're doing and seek to manipulate those sentiments in order to win power. And in fact, that's really what the book is about, yeah. um, is it's, it's less about people who are, you know, afraid of diversity and more about people who are seeking to create that fear. Um, and, you know, how can you provoke and evoke that fear? How can you inspire your listeners or your viewers to become afraid? Um, and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and it's really about the, you know, the, the so-called anti-elite elitists. I mean, yeah. the, 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 the clerks. I, I use the expression clerks, which clerks, is borrowed yeah. from a very old book from, right. from the 20s. To explain to people what that means, the clerks, because that ties into what you're talking about. So, so the clerks is, a, is, a, is an expression used by a writer called Julian Benda, who was writing in France in the 1920s and 30s, um, and who was identifying a phenomenon of intellectuals who had become part of extremist politics. And again, he saw them on both the left and the right. In that era, of course, there was both you know, Soviet style communism, and there was Hitler style fascism. Um, And you did have, particularly in France, you know, these people sympathizing with both sides. And so the book was about people who use their talent and brains and ingenuity on behalf of radical political causes. Um, And although his world doesn't map, you know, directly onto ours, and I'm not saying that we live in exactly that same kind of era, that phenomenon of intelligent, clever people seeing how radical politics can be useful to them, seeing how it can be appealing, um, you know, becoming the mouthpieces for it, becoming the, the, you know, the spokesman for it. I mean, this is an old phenomenon that goes back, you know, a century. Right. And what you're really talking about in a modern sense are uh, talk radio hosts or cable television hosts Sure. Laura Ingram, who features in the book, you know, right. Rush Limbaugh, um, right. 
you know, but, but they're more sophisticated, even sure. I mean, there are philosophers, they're intellectuals, they're writers, they're spin doctors, they're, um, you know, they're, they're, they're people who work on behalf of these causes, both for personal and for political reasons. Right. They, these are people who know better, but are deliberately uh, animating prejudices in people. They, they, are- they know they're animating prejudice. Sometimes they do it cynically and sometimes they do it because they believe it too. I mean, there's a sort of, I, I don't want to be over general. <laughs> yeah. But without that support, the authoritarian wouldn't be able to succeed. No, I mean, this, this is what brings authoritarians to power, you know, you know, by himself, you know, Hugo Chavez or um, Erdogan in Turkey would not reach power. They need people to translate them, you know, to the, to the, to the, to the voters. They need people to create, you know, bot farms for them. They need people to write their speeches. They need people to create their imagery, you know, and, and there's, there are teams of people who do that. And, and those are all sophisticated people. I mean, so, you know, the, the very idea that these movements are somehow, you know, stupid or ignorant is really wrong. Um, and it's a great mistake that leftish or centrist intellectuals make when thinking about them. They're often extremely sophisticated and they have sophisticated people working for them. Yeah. And then once this type of person acquires political power, you now have a situation where loyalty becomes more important than talent, as you point out. And then the gears of government become contaminated with people that are unqualified and are there for their own self-interest and not serving the purposes of the public. Yeah, that's a slightly different issue. So, the, so then the issue is once a would-be authoritarian attains power, um, how do they keep power? Well, they keep, they, you know, if they're in a democratic system, which, you know, historically, by the way, um, in the last several decades, more democracies have declined or collapsed because of the slow erosion of political power of, of democratic institutions and not because of coup d'etat. You know, we're all used to thinking you need tanks on the street, you know, yeah. and guys in uniform to bring down democracy. It's actually not true. Um, yeah. And in recent history, more mostly democracy declines slowly. And one of the things that happens when a would-be autocrat takes power is that he looks around himself and says, right, I need to make sure that my political opponents never win again. Um, where are the institutions that are going to stand against me or are going to oppose me? And then, and they look immediately at the media, they look at the courts, um, they look at the civil service um, and, it, you know, and they don't want civil servants who aren't, um, you know, who are, who are, who are too clever, who are going to be keeping track of things, who are going to be watching for corruption, who are going to be watching for bending of the rules. And so sooner or later they seek to replace the civil servants and what they have done, and this is true, you know, kind of country after country, actually going back to the Bolsheviks, you know, who had the same attitude towards governing, is they, you know, they create, they say, all right, who, who, who deserves to rule? You know, who do, who do we want in power? Well, we want people who are loyal to us. And so the test for whether somebody should be, you know, in Europe, chairman of a state company, or whether they should be, you know, inspector general of the, of the, of the Pentagon, or whether they should be, um, head of the Environmental Protection Agency is not whether they're good at science or whether they're good at math or whether they're good at finance. The, 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 the criteria is, are they loyal? Um, and very often there are these kind of loyalty tests. You know, are you willing to accept 
you know, um, this piece of fiction or this conspiracy theory? Are you going to stay silent when the rules are broken? Are you someone who we can rely on, um, you know, um, you know, over, over many years? And very often the loyalists, I mean, this is sort of different category from of people who we were talking about. These are not the same as the, the you know, as, as the clerks that, you know, the loyalists are, um, you know, are people who who are happy to take part in this, you know, in these kind of farcical changes and are happy to um, and are happy to have jobs. Um, and, and the, you know, it's one of the, let me just a little diversion. You know, I wrote about that in the book partly, you know, as a way of describing what can be the result of an attack on meritocracy. You know, right now in the United States, it's very fashionable to criticize meritocracy. And I fully and absolutely understand why, especially when you look at, um, you know, when you look at how be- people become rich, when you look at who gets into the best schools, all that, you know. Don't forget, however, that the elimination of merit from, you know, from, from, you know, from government, from public service, from, you know, from, from other walks of life does create, a, a, you know, a, a very difficult and frightening alternative possibility, namely that people are chosen for jobs or for, um, you know, or, or positions, not because they're going to be good at them, but because they satisfy some political criteria um, or some ideological criteria. Um, and that's what has happened. I mean, I watched this happen in Poland, where we had the, the you know, an, an excellent um, civil service and, 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 and particularly excellent diplomatic service completely destroyed within four years by a far right government who just threw mm-hmm. everybody out and put um, unqualified people in its place. We saw a version of that in the Trump administration with all those unqualified people in, in, you know, you know, in important government jobs. Um, and so, you know, don't, don't forget that having merit as some qualification for certain walks of life remains really important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the standard isn't perfection. And, and I think that, you know, meritocracy is is the basis for any free market system and yeah there will be weaknesses in it there will be collapses in part of it but as you say the alternative um, is a system that will only continue to galvanize the power of an authoritarian that's all you're headed for yes and and you know and the difficulty for modern america is that we now need to trod some path between a meritocracy that, you know, that excludes people, um, you know, and, and the opposite problem, which would be of a completely politicized um, system where people were promoted for only for political reasons. And we need, we need some path in between. And, and, you know, it's very, you know, it's not an easy problem and it's not one that can be resolved. And I wouldn't want to give a solution that applies to all institutions and all, you know, banks and, universities all at once, but it's a, it is, it is not an easy problem to solve. At the beginning of chapter five, which I loved, you talk about how powerful the founding story of the United States is, you know, our reverence for the constitution and uh, our our geographical isolation and the, and our, our incredible economic achievements are you cite as reasons that modern Americans may have become convinced that, you know, liberal democracy can't fail here. In, in short, we've done so well, and it's been relatively good times compared to a lot of places in the world that we've become kind of lazy or maybe taking it for granted. And, and, but that goes against a different idea in the book 
where it's you say that given the right conditions, any society will turn against democracy. And so, of course, naturally, it can happen here, and it almost did happen here. Certain, you know, elements that we recognize in authoritarianism arose in the last four years. And so, I'm wondering if you've given thought to the question of what form of government or system in which society organizes itself is most natural to people in an evolutionary sense. In other words, you know, we need these stories to um, to have millions of people coalesce around common identity. We, we need to believe in these stories like the founding story and the constitution, you know, that's really where, what, what drives humanity, but it's very hard to maintain these stories, you know, and, and, and these things that, make all of us who are very different types of people connect around one thing. Um, so I'm guessing, have you thought about whether or not it's difficult because it's just not natural for people to live in democracies and that eventually populations will gravitate towards a, a, a strong leader who will sort of give them what they want or they believe will give them exactly what they want. So that's certainly what a lot of ancient philosophers thought, and that was what the founding fathers were afraid of, precisely because they were reading the ancient philosophers. Um, Mm -hmm. They were one of the reasons our constitution, which sometimes feels like it was put together with scotch tape, has so has you know has some so many strange institutions in it. Was because those were all things that were devised to protect American democracy from this, you know, from the human draw, you know, the sort of, you know, they would have called it human passions, you know, this draw to, to illiberal ideas or to dictatorship or to demagogues and that when they, and they set up our system to to defend against that as best as it can. Um, I mean, you know, I don't think that any kind of decline in our system is inevitable. Um, the point of me, when the, the reason I wrote the book the way I did was because I, I, I wanted people, though, to understand that it was possible um, and that our particularly lucky generation, you know, our, you know, we are a cohort. We've all grown up in a world in which democracy is the ascendant form of government, in which it was spreading, in which the United States was the leader of, the, of a powerful camp of democracies, and in which we could all understandably become caught up in this sense of inevitability and believe that we didn't need to do anything special in order to, for it to continue. In other words, you know, it's as if we, you know, we all assumed um, democracy was, you know, was, was, was like, it was like tap water, you know, it was just something that came out of the wall and Mm -hmm. we didn't have to do anything special in order to make it come out of the wall, you know, whereas really in fact, democracy is like water in the ground, you know, and we, in fact, what we need to do is, you know, dig it out and, and, and boil it. And, you know, and, and we might have to be more actively involved. Democracy Um, is a verb. Democracy is a verb. Exactly. And it, and it implies a continued engagement. It means that we can't just rely on professional politicians to do it for us. You know, we can't all just go and make money or write books, you know, while we let a few specialized people worry about democracy, it might actually be something that requires a lot more, um, civic engagement. Um, and, and, and one of the effects of the collapse of communism in 1989 and the, and the, and the expansion of the democratic camp after that, as I said, was the, was the growth of this feeling that, well, we're fine. You know, we don't have to do anything. We we don't need to reform our institutions because 
they're the, you know, we live in the best of all possible worlds. Um, and what I'm, what I, what I hope might have just happened or what I hope will begin to happen is that Americans will see the Trump presidency as a kind of wake up call, you know, that a lot of our institutions do need reform, um, that our, you know, our unrepresentative Congress needs a reform, you know, that, that Congress, um, you know, the, 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 that rural America so easily outvotes urban America, for example, um, that, um, you know, that our assumption that our ways of voting are perfect might need to be reexamined. Um, that, you know, there, and, you know, that, that the, that the, that the internet, which we have allowed to become dominated by a very few, you know, very wealthy platforms and companies doesn't have to be that way. I mean, we can, we can reform it and change it um, so that it's more reflective of democratic values. And it's, you know, it's not reflective of, I don't know, oligarchic or oligopolistic values. Um, you know, we need to be able to think much more creatively about um, constitutional and other kinds of change. And, you know, as a country, we've done that before. You know, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a huge range of democratic reforms and economic reforms that really changed the way the country functioned. Um, and so it, it was possible. We have also in our in our history, we have this ability to make these big changes, whether it's, you know, whether it's breaking up the trusts and the big monopolies, whether it's, you know, giving the right of, you know, voting rights to women. I mean, they're all, there, there have been moments when there have been big, big changes and maybe we're just due for another one. But let me ask you this. Are, are you hopeful that we can access those reforms? You know, when January 6th happened, I think I read that completely wrong. I thought, okay, now we're going to feel like someone threw cold water on us. We're going to wake up. So my gosh, that was a bad nightmare. Um, holy cow, we need to get after this. And yet, you know, just takes a couple of weeks and the leaders in Congress are right back there promoting the big lie. You know, if, if we're not going to, if we're not going to take a cold shower with this, with this event, are you hopeful that we can access these changes ultimately? So I agree with you. I found the reaction of Congress depressing. I, I won't say that I was entirely surprised. Um, Maybe the numbers surprised me a little bit. I thought there would be more Republicans who, you know, the more Adam Kinsingers and more Liz Cheney's and more Mitt Romney's than there were. Um, but I wasn't surprised that the the others were there too. Um, look, I mean, this is a moment for, you know, just like it's, you know, eventually you have to find new friends when some of your friends go nuts. You know, this is a moment for forming new coalitions. Um, I, you know, I very much hope that the Biden administration finds a way to reach out to moderate Republicans or independents or centrists or whatever word we're using for them, um, both in Congress and in the country um, to unify them. I mean, you know, if you if, if you look at the, the, you know, one of the very interesting statistic is the the support for the his COVID relief bill, whatever you think about it and whatever, you know, there might be bits of it that you like or don't like has something like 60 to 70 support in the country, depending on how you ask the question. Um, it has far less support than that in Congress, and it doesn't have any Republican support at all. Um, and so the more Biden can find a way to, you know, for that 60 or 70 percent support to be expressed in Congress and to be expressed in politics, um, the better off we'll be. Um, and there may have to be, I mean, you probably don't want to go down the rabbit hole of talking about the filibuster, um, but we, we may, you know, it may be that the Democrats have to bite the bullet and think about, you know, different ways to pass the legislation that we need. And particularly, 
the the the, the constitutional change and the um, you know the, the the changes in voting and how democracy works. Um, we we may they have may have to be a bit more creative. I'm curious about um, the temperature in Europe. You know, you live in Poland for I think most of the year, or most, most, of, the year. most of the year. And um, I'm from Brazil originally, and I feel like being an immigrant has always, throughout my life, given me a very good perspective on how outsiders view the United States. I know how my my cousins and family members and how people in Brazil have viewed the United States. Uh, going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and in the current era. And so I'm curious to hear from you sort of what the temperature is right now in Europe with, with respect to us um, in the post-Trump era. Are they hopeful? Are they appalled? Have they given up? What, what's the, the read? So, so Europeans were very, were shocked by Trump and Trumpism. I mean, speaking very broadly, there were some, of course, who welcomed it. There was a, the, the far right in Europe was very inspired by Trump and was, um, e- you know, eagerly sought hit contacts with him and his team and approval from them. Um, you know, but of course, they're not the majority in Europe. Um, but if you talk about, um, you know, if you talk about the leaders, current leadership of, you know, France or Germany, or actually even Britain, um, I, I think the attitude to the United States now is one of great wariness. In other words, we're glad that there's a president back in power who wants, you know, who cares about the transatlantic alliance, not just as a military alliance, but as a, you know, as a group of committed democracies. You know, we're really happy to hear that. Um, but we're a little nervous because he might lose his congressional support two years from now and four years from now, you know, Tucker Carlson might be president. In other words, so there's a you know, the, 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 one of the great advantages that the U.S. once had in foreign policy was its kind of, its, its, the, its reputation for consistency. So even though, you know, American politics is pretty nutty, and even though some presidents say some wacky things, there was, a, there was within a range of possibilities, you could guess how they were going to behave, and you knew what the direction of American national interest was. And that is, that is gone. Um, and so, the, you know, there will be a lot of skepticism about new projects that Biden proposes. You know, is this something that Americans are really going to stick to? Um, and the same actually, by the way, goes for the rest of the world. Um, so there is a, um, you know, there's a wariness about American leadership and, and a, you know, and, and a caution. I should say there's one other, there is one other effect, though, that, that particularly January the 6th had, which is that I think it has scared a lot of people about the potential for anti-democratic movements in their countries. Um, very recently, the German government has announced a kind of investigation of one of the, of the German far-right party, the, the, it's called the AFD, the Alliance for Deutschland, mm-hmm. which is a party that does have strange and mysterious links to Russia, including funding links, um, and which um, has been very involved in the you know, kind of anti-mask and anti-COVID protests in Germany, which are very shocking to a lot of Germans. Um, and I think that the January 6th moment galvanized Germans to suddenly worry about whether, you know, what were the possibilities of that kind of movement arising in their own country. Um, so it may be that, you know, watching what happened in the U.S. Um, inspires some Europeans to think more about the quality of their own democracies. Um, yeah, this thing has ripples for sure. It has a lot of ripples. So um, you end the book, though, with a great deal of optimism. And I really appreciated that because, the, as I said, the first chapter was such a 
and I mean this in a good way. The first chapter was such a two by four to the head. I, I was like, wow, holy cow. I see what she's saying. And oh my gosh, you know, this existential threat is much more imminent than I thought. And you end it with, um, with a real positive. First of all, I, I think it also means that Ed and I need to check our social circles because you party. God bless you. I mean, it's great. You're always throwing dinner parties. Um, but in, in this one, you really talk about the next generation. And I just want you to talk about that a little bit, because what I took from it, I'm wondering if, if, if I took the right thing, um, was that you're hopeful because this next generation can deal with nuance and diversity in such a more natural, uh, organic way than we seem to be able to. And so I'm wondering if that's kind of where you get this optimism from is just watching your, your children and how they, um, how they absorb the world and how their friends absorb the world. So I, I hope so. I mean, um, um, the, you know, my, my, my hope is that, you know, the, the, a generation of digital natives, you know, who, who, who grew up in a very diverse world, um, who are used to a kind of freewheeling exchange, um, you know, and, and seeing a wide variety of, you know, people and ideas, you know, run by them on, on their, on their telephones or their laptops. Um, I'm hopeful that they have a, you know, that they will have a, a, you know, a greater ability to navigate some of the problems of modernity than we do. Um, I should also say that part of the reason I ended the book that way was I, I also feel that it's very, um, it's very irresponsible to be pessimistic. <laughs> I mean, if you're my age, or if I may say so, your age, you know, it's really not fair for us to say, we think everything's going downhill and it's never going to recover. Um, because that means that there's no hope for our children or their friends or people younger than us to, to make any difference. And so um, you have to always leave open the possibility that things will get better, that we can reform ourselves, that we can fix things. Um, and I, you know, I, I just wanted to end the book by saying that, of course, that's possible. The book is Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism and Applebaum. Thank you so much for your time. This is a great book. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Appreciate it. Great book. Thank you, Anne. So um, Ed, that was a great conversation. It was a great conversation. I felt feel very, very fortunate to have discovered this little book. It reminds me of, as you were pointing out, the uh, Tim Snyder's On Tyranny. It's a small book, big punch. Really big punch here. I, I think that it helped me understand um, how much of a, a personality issue this all really is and not a policy issue. And I'm actually reminded of a book called The Penguin and the Leviathan, which talks about uh, the, st- the way society really functions. What they have found is it doesn't, doesn't matter which era at which you look, which country, which religion, it doesn't matter. 30% of society is selfish and 70% is cooperative. And, um, you know, that's not about your, your politics. That's about your perspective. And I think that um, that's kind of what I got out of this is um, there's a group of people that, that uh, are very scared of cooperating. And uh, that fear pushes them into a realm of crazy, to be completely candid. It pushes them into a realm of conspiracy theories and authoritarian figures and moving down a road that is uh, dangerous. 
And I think that it's incumbent upon uh, the 70% of people that believe in cooperating, that believe that we need to share this planet and figure out how we are going to organize um, to make sure they put systems and institutions in that are strong enough to survive so that if someone in that 30% takes over, we can, we can last. And that's what I learned from this. This book made me think a lot about how lucky our generation is. Uh, you know, I, my family came to the United States in the seventies, you know, you were born uh, uh, not too long before the seventies, <laughs> but we're, of, we, you and I are both of a certain age, the same age. And we have grown up in a time of enormous prosperity and peace. I mean, it has been a layup in, in the scope of world history growing up in the United States over the last 50 years is a pretty good card to draw. It's a great card to draw. And um, uh, it, in fact, the, the hand was so good that we've lost clarity on a common foreign enemy. And um, so what that has left us with is that the, whoever it was that wasn't in power um, viewed those who were in power as the enemy. And, so we have this ping pong back and forth. Um, and I think that, that that's fine if you understand that at the end of the day, America, America uh, needs to prevail. I think it's different when you start to erode its institutions in order for you to prevail. I think that we'll have nothing left, but the dam will have broken. And, and I, I, look, I like the optimism with which she ends this book. Um, I think that it is deserved and earned because I do think that this next generation will be able to deal with diversity in a much better way than we have. I am hopeful in that way. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. And please follow us on Twitter. You can find us at at head underscore heart underscore pod. Thanks, Ed. We'll talk next week. And this podcast was produced by Casey Morris.